So if you have not been keeping up with the saga, I have now finished my internship at the church where Lisa was a youth leader, and only a few weeks out of high school, which was startling as I thought of that this week, I was like, oh my dear Lord, you were just out of high school, what is the matter with me? <laughs> I drove 2,000 miles back to Springfield, Missouri to finish my senior year. And I was moving back away from the girl that I had quickly fallen in love with and believed that God had told me in my heart of hearts that I would marry this girl. We wrote cards and letters and we called each other as much as was possible. And by possible, I mean that we could afford because long distance costs a lot of money and we would talk for a long time and then I would get my phone bill from the school and it would be so expensive and I'd just have to go back to writing because I could not afford to keep calling her. And I would write these flowery, long, poetic, sometimes cringy letters. I know this to be true because Lisa saved them. And here are like 25 examples of how my, improve, and my uh, communication has improved dramatically over the years. Read it. No. As a matter of fact, after this, these are going into the fire pit and uh, all evidence will be destroyed. All right, my Lord, calm down. But somewhere in this love story, Somewhere in our exciting, blossoming romance that we were convinced was real and we were convinced was for us and that we were going to be together and we wanted to be with nobody else, doubt set in. And not just doubt for one of us, we both had these moments of realization. As a matter of fact, there's one card, or just one letter in here in which it completely changes the tone. There's just a shift and, and, and there's some doubt, like maybe we should take a step back. Maybe we should pump the brakes because I think there was this, this realization maybe that we got caught up in the ether of it all. That in each other's presence, we were just fully in love with each other, but then maybe with a little distance, we had the maturity and the, and the state of mind to understand that maybe it was all moving too quickly. By February of my final semester in my senior year, her and I were still talking and we were still making an effort and we were still expressing how much we cared for each other, but something went dramatically wrong. Some meddling idiot that worked with Lisa and also was friends with my ex-girlfriend who happened to like both of those girls conveniently mentioned to Lisa that maybe I was talking to my former girlfriend and maybe we were even talking about marriage. And that was it. That was all Lisa needed to hear, and it was over. She didn't want to talk anymore. She wanted nothing to do with me, and I can't blame her, really. 
when I started feeling unsafe and I started feeling like I wasn't going to get what I thought I was supposed to get when it didn't look like my dream was going to come true. I returned to what was familiar and safe and what was guaranteed. I went back to the girl who said she wanted to marry me, even though I didn't want to marry her. Even though I broke up with her because I wanted to be with Lisa, but the moment I felt any kind of obstacle, the moment I felt any kind of resistance, the moment there was any difficulty whatsoever that challenged this dream, I gave up. And I let it go. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But I want to go back to what happened when Jesus' disciples tried to pray and deliver this young child, this young boy whose father had begged them to deliver him from demon possession and it didn't happen and the man came and begged Jesus and Jesus prayed and immediately it happened and the boy was delivered and he was healed and the father was grateful but he, he, he narked, he, he snitched on the disciples and said, I brought him to them first but they couldn't do it. And the disciples, feeling embarrassed and humiliated that their faith wasn't capable, asked, why is it that we could not do what you just did? And here's what Matthew 17, 20 says. You don't have enough faith, Jesus said. I tell you the truth, if you had, if you were in possession of faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. So Jesus gives this provision, this, this condition. He says, this is the reason you couldn't do anything. This is the reason you couldn't move this force that was bigger than you, that was impossible in natural terms to move. You weren't able to move this force away from this child, and I did. You couldn't do it because you didn't have faith. And Jesus talks about the faith of a mustard seed. He clearly says that we don't, when we're in situations like that, when we find ourselves speaking to mountains or trying to do impossible things, facing challenges or circumstances that are difficult, and we pray and nothing happens, we get embarrassed, discouraged, and even angry at God. And Jesus says something to us that I think we should listen to. He says, it's clear you don't understand the potency and the power of true faith because it's so explosive that it can uproot mountains. It can violate the laws of nature. So what is it that we do understand about faith? What is it we do get right about faith? Well, number one, faith is a currency that comes solely from God and it can be spent only with God. So when you find that you're spending your faith on something other than in him, you're gonna find that faith to be impotent. It's like when you're going through your change and you're going to pay for something and the cashier's quick enough that you tried to pay with a Canadian dime. It doesn't work here, right? Jesus said though, whatever we asked for in prayer, we would receive if we asked for it in faith, what real faith is. The Apostle Paul says we can't even please God without first having the faith to believe he exists and then understanding that he rewards those who seek him. So faith is a currency. Faith is also the ability to step outside of our emotions and our five senses and even, listen, 
our logic and reason, because if you believe that impossible things are always impossible, then that is the most logical, reasonable conclusion you can come to. That's the one you'll be able to prove with your five senses. That's empirically evident. You don't have to convince anyone that mountains do not move. Everyone will be in agreement with you on that. Faith is what allows you to step outside of that. Hebrews 11.1, 1, we read it last week, says faith is being sure that we'll get what we hope for without even having the evidence of being able to see it. James 1, 6 through 8, these aren't in your notes, by the way. When we ask God for something, we must have faith and not doubt. Because anyone who doubts is like an ocean wave tossed around in a storm. In other words, the moment we express faith and something doesn't happen, we start feeling discouraged, we start feeling doubtful. And guess what? We have so contaminated faith that it no longer has the ability. Do this. Go home to your gas tank right now. And with that gasoline, which will propel you to anywhere you want to go, go ahead and run a garden hose in there. And find out what mixing water into your gas will do to your ability to move from one point to the other. Faith is like that. Faith is patient trust. When God moves a mountain in his timing, it's believing that the timing is just as miraculous as the mountain moving itself. So what are we missing? If our faith isn't working, what is it that we're missing? That what, what in the DNA of faith aren't we getting right? There must be something or we wouldn't have anything to talk about for the next few minutes. So grab your notes if you don't already have them out. The mountains I need to move aren't going to listen to a faith that number one relies on the kind of strength that I already have that relies on the strength that I already have. So today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, men. Seriously, you are awesome. You are under-celebrated. You are under-appreciated. I'm not saying by your family. I'm saying as, as a rule of society, in order to give women the value and the appreciation and the worth that they deserve, there has been a toxic movement that we have to degrade men in order to give women the value that they deserve. Women deserve value, and we don't have to diminish men to give them that. Amen? Amen. So men, you're under-celebrated, under-appreciated. But a couple common ways that we celebrate men, and rightfully so, are some of the things that men do out of their strength, their willingness to show selflessness and to sacrifice themselves, and bravery, and the ability and willingness to do the hard jobs, the physically hard jobs, the demanding jobs. Did you know this, that almost 90% of blue-collar workforce is made up of men? Men are doing the physical work that keeps us going as a society. 87% of police officers are men. 96% of firefighters are men. 80% of the military armed forces are men. Men are the ones who put themselves on the line, 
who sacrifice themselves, who are willing to put themselves in harm's way. And maybe it's because we see an imbalance of gender in these kind of things because statistically, physiologically, biology tells us that men are physically more adept to do that. I read an article in Science Daily that said men have 75% more muscle mass in their upper body than women. And they are 90% uh, have 90% more body strength than upper women. Upper body strength. Did I say that? So men are, uh, I I mean, I've I've had Lisa kick me before, so I believe we're equally strong in that area. But... um, (laughs) Men are more adept to do these kind of jobs and thankfully willing to do so. So maybe it makes more sense that men fill roles of strength. Showing strength is what we celebrate men for. And therefore, men are more likely to repeat behaviors in which they are celebrated. So we reward men for being strong and showing strength. And doing strong things and being brave and standing up to opposition and, and taking action when mountains need to be moved. And for this reason, faith comes more difficult for men than it does for women. Because faith demands that we lean on a strength that we do not already possess. Faith taps into a strength, a kind of strength that originates outside of us and flows entirely outside of us. We have to lean on that strength. Men are not adept to getting help. Men don't necessarily love to read directions. I put some patio furniture together yesterday, and along with all the packing, I got the instruction packet and threw that into the pile of stuff that I would not need. And I looked at the screws and I said, yeah, that one logically looks like the one that would go in here. As if someone from the manufacturing company was there monitoring whether I could do this without their help or not. As if there were people waiting on the sidelines to cheer for me for accomplishing something without asking for any help. It's just within our nature to not want help. I've been in parking lots where we've bought something heavy and I'm trying to get it into the back of my truck and a man comes along and goes, can I give you a hand? The first thing I want to say is, I got it. I got it. I'll just spend a week in traction and probably have to have some discs realigned and fused together. But I'm good. I'm good. We're reluctant to take help. But listen to Ephesians 3, 16 through 18. It says this, I ask the Father with his great glory to give you the power to be strong, not in your bodies, but in your spirits. He will give you that strength through his spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. I pray that Christ will live in you in your hearts because of your faith. And I pray your life will be strong in love and will be built on love. And I pray that you and all God's holy people will have the power to understand, that's power of the mind, the greatness of Christ's love, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep that love is. This passage written primarily to men because men were often the teachers of the home, men were often the spiritual leaders of the home, men were the leaders in the church, it was a male-dominated culture in the Middle East, right? 
So Paul understood he was writing to, and he was challenging men to view strength differently. He celebrated strength, he celebrated power, he celebrated authority, he celebrated greatness. He said, those are all great things, but I pray that God gives you the ability to find your strength in your spirit. Find your strength in your ability to trust Christ. Find your strength in your ability to lean on the Holy Spirit. It is difficult for us men. But I want to tell you this, the mountains that your family will face, the difficulties and the challenges that are before you and that have been before you in the past and will continue to be in front of you, some of those are going to require you to be physically strong. And you'll know when that moment is. But I want to ask you to do this. Men, we have to start trusting the strength of God. We have to start relying on Him when it comes to reaching out and trusting that some things cannot be moved by our physical strength. It can't be moved by brute force. It can't be done by the savvy of figuring it out. I love a challenge. I love figuring out a problem. I love doing the things that it takes to resolve that. But I want you to hear this. The biggest, most important things, your family's not looking for you to be strong all the time physically. Your wife, your kids need you to be spiritually and in your faith as strong as you are physically. Amen? Number two is this, the mountains that I need to move won't listen to a faith that continues to trust the things that I already trust. To trust the things that I already trust. So I want to tell you a story of a traveler who found himself on an unexpectedly long and disorienting journey through a scorched and barren land. And after walking countless days that he couldn't remember and continuing for endless miles without seeing any other people, or finding a place of reprieve and rest to find relief from the scorching sun or to quench his insatiable thirst, he began to lose all hope that he would finish the journey or maybe even survive the journey. But then on cue, almost as if he could have expected this mirage, this illusion, he saw a small, weathered wooden shed in the distance. And he thought, at the very least, I'll be able to find some relief from the sun beating down. And with his last remaining hope and the physical strength that he could muster up, he stumbled his way up to the weathered shack. And coming upon this, this sun-beaten wood door of the hut, he pushed against the rusted hinges as it protested being opened, and it found inside the answer to a thousand prayers that his throat was too parched to even pray out loud. It wasn't a shack that he had found, but rather a pump house, in which he found a old weathered and beaten down, but still possibly operable, hand pump to what he hoped was a very deep and a very cold and a forcefully running well. To the left, though, of that hand pump was a small table, barely large enough to fit a small jug of water on which a note was rested. And that note said, Traveler, to drink from this well, you must pour all the water from this jug. 
and to the top of the pump so that you may prime it. Then you may pump all the water you want or need, but kindly remember to refill the jug for the next weary traveler. Now he found himself needing to make a terrible choice. As soon as he saw that there was water, his first instinct was, of course, to drink it, but he needed to ask himself, could he trust this unknown person who wrote the letter? Could he trust that it wasn't some cruel joke? If he drank the water, he would certainly satisfy his need, his insatiable thirst in that moment. At least there would be temporary relief, but with certainty he would not have anything left for the journey. But he might be able to survive. But if he trusted the note and he trusted the heart of the person who wrote it and he trusted the logic of using all the water to prime the pump, then he could have all that he wanted and needed. And so in an act of either stupidity or faith, he poured every drop of water into the pump and he began to pump feverishly at first, nothing, but then as he heard the water gurgle its way down, the water that could have been in his throat, in his mouth, he found himself getting thirstier and thirstier, now thinking, what if nothing comes out? I die here. But the more he pumped, he began to feel the tension build in the handle. And then first, the dirty and rusty water began to pump out, and then clean, cold water. And he did. He drank his fill. He bathed himself, and he filled every container for his future travel. And then... As the note said, he refilled the jug. And that is where men find themselves every week. With the resources that they manage, that they earn, that they make. Now, interestingly, nationally, men and women contribute about the same to household income. I don't know if you knew that. 81% of women polled said that they play an equal role in the financial decisions of the home. But listen, only 40% of their husbands agreed with them. Which means this, that even though women are equally contributing and believe that they're equally speaking into the difficult decisions of how we spend our money, only 40% of men believed that they had help with finances. Means there's a lot of men who believe they're shouldering, even though their wife may be making an equal amount and thinks she is contributing to the decision-making of finances. Men are still traditionally carrying the burden of making those decisions. What do I do with the water? This is maybe why women are better at giving to church. Giving it all. Statistically, women are more generous. And the reason is, research has found that women believe that there is future reward in being generous now. Men, on the other hand, are more skeptical and believe that they can do more with what they have in their hand than to give up any and trust that they'll get more in the future. Men, we have to start trusting that we are not, and our wives are not, our primary providers. 
we have to start believing as men of strength and men of faith that God loves your family more than you do and God's provision is greater than yours. And that when you usurp the authority of God and you declare yourself as the provider, then God steps back and goes, provide away. You don't need me. You clearly trust your paycheck, your job, your provisions, your money handling, your financial decisions, your willingness to give or not to give more than you trust me. I will let you have what you want. God is good at letting us have our way. Even when we have to learn a lesson from our way. Listen to Matthew 6, 24. It says this, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. If you try, you'll wind up loving the first master and hating the second. Or vice versa, people try to serve both God and money, but you can't, you must choose one or the other. Can I tell you, you can't trust you and trust God at the same time. You either have to trust God and believe that he has your provision in mind. You either hold on to your money and believe that you'll do better with it, or you have to learn to be obedient to God and step out in faith and do the things that God says. Establish a trust covenant with him. He says, if you will bring the full tithe into the storehouse, then I will release blessings to you that can't even be contained. It says, give, and then it shall be given to you. Press down, shaken together, making room for more so that it can overflow. Men, there's nothing wrong with being a provider for your family, but understanding that you are in a covenant relationship with God in which you say, I am your servant, God, and I will use whatever tools available to me that you give me to provide for my family. But I trust at the end of the day, if I lose this tool, you will not stop providing for me. I can tell you I learned that lesson the hard way. When I spent almost a year without working, we came back from a toxic church situation in Arizona. We just found these cards that they all wrote us, and I was heartbroken because many of the names I didn't even recognize. And it's because our season there was so short, it was so painful that we nearly had to flee from there. And we came back here with no job, with no place to stay, with no prospects for income, with no future plan, we just had to get away. And I became angrier and more disappointed and more distrusting of God than I ever have before. And I've told you the story of standing on my driveway and shaking my fist at God and saying, when my family is out on the street and we have nowhere to live, I'm gonna tell everyone that it was you. Because your word said you never leave the righteous forsaken or your seed begging for bread. Well, we're going to be on the street begging for bread and you're forsaking us. And that really wasn't the reality at all. But God was not providing the way I was used to him providing. He was not giving me a job so that I could take over providing. He was making me trust him and I hated him for it. And I have to tell you that I haven't felt those stirrings of feelings until recently, and we've gotten into this discussion with these property owners, where I have resorted back to some of those old feelings of, God, if you'll just do it this way, I'll take care of it. I'm so smart, why won't you let me show you how I can negotiate this deal? 
And every time there's a conversation that I think we're going to turn the rudder, God shuts it down. And we're still in this waiting period and I'm convinced that we're waiting on me to learn a lesson. Just pray I learn it quicker than later. (laughs) Third and finally is this, because we wanna go have dads and dogs. Some dad's root beer and some hot dogs for our men. The mountains I need to move won't listen to a faith that won't change the way I already see my world. Real faith has to change us. I mean, authentically, practically, relevantly, meaningfully change us. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, and and I don't like that this is true, but it is true that the pandemic did a lot of harm. It, I think it messed up people emotionally and, and there's a lot of um, physical things and, and spiritual things that have come out of it, but I believe that it has done something good for the church. And I mean, church capital C, the national uh, uh, body of Christ. Those who call themselves Christians have had to move from simply claiming to be a Christian to practically acting like a Christian. It demanded it because we weren't allowed to meet together. We couldn't do the traditional forum of behaving like Christians among Christians. They shut us out of our ability to come and sit together and worship together and sing and listen to the word and, and, and meet in small groups and do all of those things that we value so much, but also make us feel as if that is the sum of our Christianity. And when that was taken away, the body of Christ had to determine whether they were Christians by value and by the way we speak and by the way we act and the way we relate to other people and the way we respond to government and the way we respond to difficulty and the opportunities that we take or don't take to be a safe harbor for scared and angry people. It shook the roots of the church and made Christians declare what they really truly believed in who they truly were. In these letters, I went through and read them all. And one thing I will say is there was only one written in cursive. And it was immaculate. It was the most beautiful. I will tell you, I have forgotten how to do that. Terrible. I must have been feeling very Shakespearean that day. But no matter how I wrote, whether in print or in cursive, I said a lot of things in here about loving her and being captivated by how beautiful I thought she was and how I love talking to no one else more than I love talking to her and that I wanted to be with nobody else. And I talked about our future and I talked about us being together But something I noticed to a bit of disappointment in myself, that when I talked about us being together, it was always in reference to getting her to come to me, to leave her home, 
her friends, her job, her family, her plans, her safety and security to come be with me. And when I talked about coming back to California, there was one excuse after the other. I'd be hard to find a job and it's expensive to move and I don't have anywhere to stay and I don't know how I would get established there and almost setting up the disappointment and excusing it before it happened. Weirdly, after Lisa rightfully broke things off in February when these come to an abrupt stop, right? No letters to or from, no phone calls to or from. I began to ask myself the question, if I truly, truly believed that she was the promise God had for me. And so I graduated and I called my friend, Brad Rosenberg, who spoke here for Convoy of Hope. And I said, hey, I wanna catch a ride with you when you go to do your internship. And he said, well, how are you planning on getting home? You're just gonna stay here for the whole internship? And I said, I don't think I'm coming home. I don't even remember packing a suitcase. I'm sure I did. I'm sure my mom insisted at 21 years old, Christopher, you're going to need clothes while you're there. But without a car and without a job and legitimately without even calling anyone to see if I could stay with them, and with hardly any money at all, just a little bit that I got from graduation, I moved to California to chase after a girl who wasn't even talking to me. Because I realized that you have to put up or shut up. If I was truly in love and I truly believed everything I said, then I had to make my actions back up all my words. And I want to tell you something that in your walk with Christ, as good as this is, as wonderful, as biblical as this is, this is not the substance of your faith. This is not the proof in the pudding of whether or not you are a Christian or a Christ follower, how often you read the word, how often you pray, how often you come to church, how many small groups you go to or lead, even how much you give in the offering, none of that is the determining factor. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it will be determined by whether we authentically love other people. Love. Love is the thing that he tells us to show strength in. He says, what good is faith if you aren't doing something with your faith? I'll close with this passage from James 2, 14 through 17. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't make any sense to say you have faith and then act in a way that denies or delegitimizes that faith. Mere talk never gets you very far in life or in faith. And a commitment to Jesus only in words will not save you. That's not enough to even grant salvation. 
It would be like seeing a brother or sister without any clothes in the cold and begging food, begging for food and saying, Shalom, peace, friend. You should get inside where it's warm and eat something. But then doing nothing about his needs, leaving him cold and alone in the street, what good would your words alone do? The same is true with faith. Without actions, faith is useless. By itself, it's as good as dead. And can I tell you that you would make a grave mistake if you thought this was about helping the homeless or helping those who aren't clothed or these rare instances and we run across somebody who's extremely impoverished and if you don't do anything then, then you're not a real Christian. It simply means this, every single time there's an opportunity to speak as a representative of Christ, think as a representative of Christ, act as a representative of Christ, that those are the moments in which you validate your faith. Those are the moments in which you demonstrate whether or not you really are a believer. You say, so in order to be saved, I have to do works? No, in order to prove you're saved, you have to do works. You're saved by the grace of Christ, but anyone saved by the grace of Christ will act like they are saved by the grace of Christ, amen? We have to be Jesus. We can't just say we love him. We can't just say we're followers of him. We can't just say we're committed to him and then don't do anything practically in our lives that establish that truth in a way that can be seen and measured and validated and authenticated. We have to start living a kind of faith that requires a behavior from us. Faith that doesn't have these things has no authority to speak to mountains. Mountains don't listen to faith that doesn't act out Jesus in our life. That relies on a strength that we already have. If we could move mountains with our own hands, we would already be doing that. We've got to learn to be strong in our faith in the same way we lean on the strength of our bodies, of our logic, of our strategies, of our plans. I truly believe this. People have asked, hey, is there any update with the building? And I'm, I'm not trying to dramatically drag that conversation out like I am just completely overusing the story of Lisa and I, how we got together. And I'll finish that story next week, by the way. Um, <laughs> we had a conversation with the broker this week. And um, he just said the owners just really, really um, thought that the, the price was far higher, that, that this is requiring they contribute far more than they were anticipating. And um, they wanted us to just say, what, how much can you write a check for? And, um, you know, normally I would hop in and just have something substantial to say, but I really didn't want to try to solve it with a, answering a question. I, I wanted to keep the conversation moving in a direction where this is what people who I trust in my life and who are encouragers in my life 
have continued to say to me throughout the last couple weeks is you've done everything that you can do in human terms. But if you do everything that leads to this coming together, then really God doesn't get the glory. Then we would get the glory for being good strategists and good planners and good negotiators and, and good managers of money. That, those are good things to be, but if this is not impossible, then God doesn't get to do an impossible thing. If he doesn't get to do the impossible thing, that he doesn't get the glory for moving the mountain on our behalf. And that conversation ended with that much progress. None. I'll go back and I'll talk to the owners and maybe we can have another conversation. I said, perfect. Love these conversations. (laughs) Even when they go nowhere. But I want to tell you something. I have reached, this is 100% true. I've reached a place that I'm 100% at peace. As a matter of fact, before I was, I was dreading it one way or the other. I was dreading getting the building because it would put new financial pressure on me. And I was dreading if we stayed here because I think that we're, we would be a a better, more successful church in a place that we could be 24-7, right? And so I didn't want to be in either place. Now my heart has shifted and I just say, God, I'm good with any place. As long as you're God, as, as long as you're the God of this church. And if this, if this building didn't work out, and I'm praying it does, if this building didn't work out, can I tell you the next building I approached, it would be with a different kind of faith than I started with. And I hope you too, I hope we would, I'm ready to believe that the next place is on the horizon that God is either using this to increase and stir our faith and readiness, or he's getting ready to move us. I don't even care one way or the other. I just say, God, I wanna, I wanna lead in faith and I haven't been able to authentically do that and now I can. And I wanna start working for and giving to and believing for the new place that God will put us so that we can be a bigger impact on the community, so that we can do the good works that demonstrate the grace and love in Christ that flows through this community of believers. Amen? We're gonna, amen, yeah. We're gonna finish up next week. I really hope that you'll be here because it's a very, very, very important message. Um, Bow your heads and close your eyes with me if you will. And I just wanna ask you, if you're struggling in your faith, first to, listen, first to even be in a relationship with Christ. Maybe you just say, honestly, I mean, I'm interested, I'm seeking, I'm, 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 I'm pursuing, but it's, it's a big step for me. And if he'll take me as I am, if he'll let me begin this journey with him right now, I'm, I'm ready to say yes. I'm ready to jump out in faith and begin that friendship with him, begin that relationship with him. Nobody's looking around. Anybody that's ready for that moment, I promise no other shoe's gonna drop. I'm not gonna do anything else. I'm not uncovering you, asking you to stand up, come forward, shake my hand, go through some class. Right where you're at, just in your heart of hearts, if you say, I wanna 
start a relationship with Christ right now. If that's you, just slip a hand up and then you can put it back down. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. You don't even have to pray this out loud because Jesus went all the way to the cross. He doesn't need you to walk around a room or do something that proves you're ready for a relationship with him. He'll come right to you, right where you're sitting. And at your invitation, take residency in your heart and in your life. And I'm going to pray this, and if you want to use these as your own words, you can. Christ Jesus, I do believe in you, but help my unbelief. I've struggled. I've wondered. I wish that I could see a picture of you or see a video of you doing a miracle, but I also know that people witnessed those miracles and still didn't believe. And so I want to flex strength of faith today. I want to go beyond reason and logic and believe in the impossible. And I want to accept the gift of life that only you can give. And I want to begin a journey with you. If you'll take me in my doubts and my struggles and my failures and disappointments and mistakes, if you'll take me as I am, I want to be more like you. And I want to start a journey of seeking and believing and praying and reading and connecting with people so that I can discover what it means to authentically be a student, a follower of yours. And if there's anyone in here who's struggling in your faith, I pray that moments like this and the struggles that you're up against and the, the mountains that are standing before you, that they serve you well, that they challenge your faith, that they, they disrupt what you have believed so far about how to move a mountain about what faith actually looks like, that it changes the way you see what it means to believe in him for impossible things. And I believe that it's going to transform the way this church speaks and reacts and does, that we can simply be people of faith, that we can be Christ followers. We don't have to talk like it. We don't, have to, we don't have to put up banners that say we are. We don't have to do things that we think prove that we are. We just simply be as God called us to be. And that's my prayer for every one of us. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. <laughs>